You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The scripture reading tonight is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body for which uh, is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful that you are indeed a speaking God, that you have spoken to us in your word, that you have spoken to us by your Son. Help us to be a listening people, to be a people of your word. Transform us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Good to see you all this evening. My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I'd love to after the service. Uh, And here we are, only two more weeks in working through our entire liturgy, our entire order of service. We have spent the last many weeks thinking through each element that we have uh, already practiced and rehearsed together this evening, uh, thinking through. Yes? Yeah, it's one of those nights. Yeah. Uh, Tonight is a K through third lower elementary night. Thanks, Karen. Uh, so if you're a kindergartner or a third grader and you would like to go think through some of these things with Miss Karen, 
Uh, man, you guys are going to have a good time. Uh-huh. Thank you for your confidence, Miss Karen. All right. Well, we've been thinking about all these things, a why, of why these things are necessary, why we do these things, uh, how they might even shape us. And so it's good to see many of you back this week. If you were on Zoom last week, there were so many of us out last week. Uh, and if you missed last week, I'd really encourage you to go back and listen to Kyle's sermon. He, Kyle last week was preaching about preaching. It was a sermon about sermons. And it was the best sermon on sermons that I've ever heard. And so if you missed it, you should listen to it. But tonight, we now finally get to the Lord's Supper, communion, uh, the Eucharist, whatever you might have called it in the tradition that you've grown up. Um, I'm just going to tell you right now that I will not have time tonight to say everything that should be said about this. Uh, certainly uh, in like the development, the history, the progression of the Lord's Supper throughout history, it is not an overstatement to say that the history of the Protestant Reformation is really just an argue, argument about what communion is and who should take it. That's basically what it is. This is a serious deal in the life and the history of the church. And so while some have argued that this meal is much more than a symbol, and by the way, I certainly don't think it's less than a symbol, uh, we'll think through those things uh, more as we go, but this thing is certainly not less than symbolic. We use symbols all the time to proclaim meaning, and often symbols carry meaning in and of themselves. Just ask like Revolutionary War or Civil War soldiers if the flag mattered. Like if the flag go goes down, you drop your gun and you pick up the flag. The flag was a symbol, but it actually communicated meaning to the armies on either side of the battle. And communion or the Lord's Supper is our weekly raising of the flag. A symbol that itself carries significant and extraordinary Meaning. Mark, should I use the, the other mic? Is this mic not doing it tonight? Are we okay? All right. All right, we're good. So as you just heard Jason read from 1 Corinthians 11, Paul wrote this in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So like a loud and perhaps even obnoxiously bold bumper sticker that you might put on the back of your car or a, an obnoxious t-shirt with huge block capital letters. When we come to this table, our eating and drinking proclaims something audacious, bold and crazy and amazing. We want to think through what this table actually does proclaim and who, to whom it proclaims things. So I think there are four audiences of our proclamation, four audiences that we proclaim when we take of this meal. So we're going to think through those four categories, those four audiences. So we're going to think through what communion proclaims to each other, what communion proclaims to God, what communion proclaims to ourselves, and then what, what communion proclaims to the world, to each other, to God, to ourselves, and to the world. So first of all, what communion proclaims to each other. The reason that Paul writes what he did in chapter 11, and also quite a bit in chapter 10 about the Lord's Supper, is because there is division within the Corinthian church. Uh, Jason just started reading right in the middle without much context, and you're like, whoa, this is weird and serious. It is rebuke right off the bat. It seems likely, you know what, I'm just going to do this. Yeah. Here we go. That's better. Sounds better too. Um, so, 
it seems likely that the Christians in Corinth would assemble together weekly, right? But not having a church building, a wealthy member of the church would host and then likely even invite other folks of the same social strata over for a meal before perhaps the other lower class people or the lower class Christians would be invited over to join for singing, for prayers, and preaching. By the time the others had joined, it sounds like most of the other upper class Christians were already full. They weren't hungry, they were perhaps even drunk. So then the poor would arrive at this already had party, both hungry and thirsty, and maybe there's nothing left. And all of this gets Paul just extremely worked up. It seems that there is a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of the gospel amongst the Corinthians. That those who are wealthy, that those who are influential, that those who are important in the world's eyes are somehow more important in the kingdom. So perhaps some of these folks might be thinking, yeah, it's, it's nice that God loves the poor. I like that from an intellectual perspective. And what makes it nice is that since God loves the poor, I don't have to. We can just ignore each other, knowing that God loves us all. And that's true, God loves us all, and yet it does something horizontally. As the old saying goes, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There is no amount of money or fame or world-identified importance that buys acceptance into the kingdom. Jesus says in John 3, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What this means is, is that Jesus loves any kind of person in the world. Rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, Hispanic or white or native, slave or free, important or unimportant, CEO or homeless. Jesus has come to redeem sinners of the world. Those who are trusting in the righteous life of Christ live for them and through his cleansing blood shed for them will find forgiveness from the rebellious and self-worshipping lives that all of us also share. Our sin is mutually shared. Our acceptance by the gospel of Jesus is mutually shared. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. The world ought to look at the church and just marvel thinking, that doesn't make any sense. Why in the world do these people who are so different not only hang out with each other, but then genuinely love one another? The only explanation must be a supernatural one, meaning outside of nature, because most connections and social groups that we run in very much have a natural explanation. They like the same things, they're from the same background, whatever it is, they work in the same place. But the gospel saves and unites, which is exactly Paul's point in chapter 10, verse 17. Because there is one bread, he says, we who are many are of one body, for we partake of the one bread. Factions in the body and conflict in the body should give us major pause before we eat of this supper together. In fact, the famous examine yourself so that you don't take it in an unworthy manner in verse 27 uh, is not necessarily, Paul is not saying these things so that you might, before you come to the table, sit in deep reflection and perhaps try to unearth every unconfessed sin in your heart. I've become persuaded that this is actually about examining whether or not you are harboring thoughts of disunity, or perhaps worse, causing disunity within the body. Verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks 
without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. So in the spirit of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, if you have unresolved conflict with a brother or sister during the week, Sunday is coming. That's a good thing. Perhaps don't come up here to this table with unresolved conflict among yourself if you have no intention of resolving. Call or email on Thursday knowing that you are coming in unity with one another to the table on Sunday. And that's one reason that I'm glad that we do this weekly here at Christ Church. It allows opportunity to keep shorter accounts, to keep conflict from festering and growing. Let's press into that reality. This is something I think we can really grow in, and not harboring resentment and not harboring grudges, but speaking to one another, resolving, coming to the table together with the bonds of peace. This communion meal proclaims to each other that we are of the same body and we belong to one another. Now, one implication of that is that communion is actually a meal for the church. If I'm not taking this meal with you, then I'm perhaps not even taking this meal. My senior year of college, uh, I led a, a small group within a parachurch campus ministry, and I decided that we were going to do something especially spiritual that Wednesday night uh, when six or seven guys came over for a Bible study. Before that, I went to the grocery store and I bought a bottle of wine and a loaf of bread, and we were going to, this was going to like take our Bible study up to 11. But now I've become convinced that what we did, what I thought we were doing of communion or the Lord, Lord, Lord's Supper, I think what we were doing was just talking about the Bible with some snacks. I think that's all we did. We weren't sharing that with the rest of the body. There's just a couple of guys, all 21 or 22, who were eating bread and drinking wine. Communion is a communal meal. Four times in chapter 11, Paul says, together, or together as a church. And it is individual members together making up local churches to whom Jesus delegates his heavenly authority. Not to individuals in their homes, not to individual Bible studies, not to summer youth camps, but to churches which are ordered in the way that the Lord Jesus has given us. So we proclaim to each other that we are of the same body, the body of Christ. Incidentally, this is one reason why we waited to start doing communion uh, after the COVID season for as long as we did. Maybe it was a little too long, but we waited. Why? Because of these words, wait on one another. We knew that there were so many who were sick or unable to join that we wanted to just wait. Wait until we could be together to come to this table together. So if you visit another church and they're taking the supper, as, as long as the leadership of that church clearly invites you according to their convictions, go ahead. Go ahead and take that. It's a, it's a meal for the church. But it is a meal for the church, both uppercase C and lowercase C. We're glad for other Christians who perhaps you are visiting here today and you're not a member of our church. We're glad for you to join us at the table tonight. But my current depth of relationship is just so much deeper with the members of this church because we have entered into covenant bonds with one another where we have vowed to each other that we actually will pursue reconciliation with each other. We actually will pursue discipleship with one another. We have made covenant promises to care for each other's souls. And so there isn't anything that is going on at summer camps or 
Bible studies, all of those are great things, wonderful things, and we should do those. I just sent two of my kids to summer camp. But without the formal accountability, without perseverance in relationships, and without the qualified leadership to administer these things together, I'm convinced that it's not the supper. It is not communion. This is a meal for the church. So if you're not a member of a local church, I could not encourage you any more highly than I am right now to pursue that kind of formalized, covenanted relationship with a local body, whether it's here at Christ Church or another gospel-preaching church in town, because this meal is not merely about vertical communion. We'll talk about that in just a second. This meal is not just about me and Jesus. This meal is about horizontal communion as well. I've shared this several times, but seriously, like any time that I ever talk about communion, I'm going to share this paragraph uh, from Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlop's fantastic little book, The Compelling Community. And they write this, sometimes when my church is celebrating the Lord's Supper, I let my gaze drift from person to person, imagining what they will be like in heaven. There's Margaret over there who sends me all those discouraging emails, yet who loves her Lord and our church. Squinting into the future, I can almost see her now shining with the wise love and compassion of her Lord. Joe, who's sitting a few rows back, reliably tells it as he sees it. That may at times be off-putting today, but the beauty of the honesty underneath will one day result in heartfelt praise to our King. Then there's Mary, who's talked with me a dozen times about struggle with unbelief. I can picture her gazing with the unending joy and confidence on her faithful Redeemer. This is not just about me and Jesus. It was a few months ago that Kyle encouraged us to just, as people were walking up and walking past you down the aisle up to this table, just silently in your mind, just say, I love you. I love you. You are a brother and sister. We belong to this body together. This meal is for us together. So communion proclaims to all of us that I belong to you all and you all belong to me as well, though, as us all belonging to God. So what does communion proclaim to God? Secondly, well, the same thing that we have been saying throughout the rest of the service, that as ruined sinners, we have no confidence in the world, we have no confidence in ourselves to approach a holy and right God, but that in Christ, we have all the confidence in the universe. We regularly and ongoingly proclaim as we sing in the song Rock of Ages that nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Nothing. We walk to this table with nothing. No resume, no business card, no report card, nothing. But to the cross of Christ we cling. There is no amount of good works, church attendance, or Bible reading that we can accomplish in our life, no amount of holiness that we can trust in or within ourselves. Thou must save, and thou alone. In verse 25, Paul records Jesus saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We read elsewhere that This blood is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. It is only by his death on the cross, his going to the place of receiving and absorbing God's good wrath and justice against our sin, that we can have forgiveness, that we can have peace. The kind of peace that Kyle read about earlier from Romans 5. Peace with God, assurance in life. So if talking about the cross of Christ, if talking about the blood of Christ starts to get old to you, 
you might need to find a new church. We cannot emphasize it too often because we will unashamedly remember and praise God for it. Just as Paul tells the Corinthians in chapter two, verse two of 1 Corinthians, he says, for I've decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. We do not start with the cross and then move on to more important parts of theology. At Christ Church, we will always stay right here, right at the foot of the cross, worshiping God for it, putting all our hope in it. Paul tells the Galatians, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, and so we will not either. Boasting all the more in the cross, the place of shame, the place of death, the place of life. Each week, because of what God has done through Christ, informed by his word, we, we appropriately come to the table, take of this communion meal, rightly, right after we hear from God's word. We are a people of his word, but now we respond as a people of him. Now, unlike many Christian traditions, we do not believe that this bread is actually Jesus' body and the wine or the juice that is in this cup is actually Jesus' blood just like it wasn't when he instituted the first Lord's Supper at that Passover meal. It was his actual and physical body, his hands that was holding the bread, which would come to symbolize his body broken for us. Jesus often and regularly spoke in symbolic language. He called himself a light, a door, a vine, among many others. And here he is saying, this is my body. But this table is the Lord's table. Paul calls it that in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 21, the table of the Lord, or verse 20 of chapter 11, the Lord's supper. This is the supper of the Lord. It is his supper. It is his table. And if that is the case, then the Lord Jesus himself is our table host. Kyle and I are actually not the ones who are inviting you forward. It is the Lord Jesus himself beckoning and inviting you with the words of Isaiah 55 that Kyle read for our call to worship, that come, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why? Because it's freely given. It is freely given by the table host. I think sometimes we as Baptists or Non-denominational Christians can sometimes be so adamant about what baptism and the Lord's Supper are not that we actually then end up minimizing what they are. Here's the thing. Jesus has promised his people, he has promised to them that he would be with them always, even until the end of the age. We, we can be confident of Jesus' presence when we pray. We can be confident of his presence when we read his word, when we are sharing his gospel. So many times, so many areas and arenas of our life, we know and can be confident that Jesus will be present with us. So why in the world would we say, but nope, not here. Jesus is not here. This is merely a symbol. No. We can be confident of his presence in his meal, in the Lord's Supper as well. There is a very real sense in which the Lord Jesus, by his spirit, absolutely nourishes his people sustains his people by his spiritual presence with us here in this meal. So our coming to this table proclaims to God, I need you, oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Jesus Christ, you are my living hope, apart from which I have no hope. 
Within your hearts, come and be satisfied by his death and his resurrection. And yet, we also proclaim to God that this little thimble of juice or wine, this little torn-off piece of bread will not satisfy us. So just as much as this is a backward-looking meal of remembrance, it is a forward-looking meal of consummation as well. When we will never hunger again, physically or spiritually, when he will make all things new, when he will deliver us finally and fully from this body of death and sin. And so I've read one guy who calls communion a weekly rehearsal dinner for the actual wedding meal for which it prepares us. Think about what you do or what you learn or what you experience at a wedding rehearsal. One thing you learn very quickly, unless you're like a seasoned wedding pro, is that you can't walk down the aisle if you're part of the wedding party or the bride or the groom. You can't walk down the aisle at your own speed. You must be slow and deliberate and intentional. And if you're in the wedding party, your coming down the aisle is actually dependent upon the speed of which the person in front of you is walking. You can't pass that person. You must stay behind and stay at that pace. Individualism at a wedding rehearsal is ruled out. You're part of a wedding rehearsal here as well. And you cannot move forward until the slower folks ahead of you have gotten to the table. This is a communal meal in which we teach ourselves to defer and to wait on one another. But also think about the meal of a wedding rehearsal, the meal following the actual rehearsal. It's a good meal, but that meal, that Friday night rehearsal dinner meal, is not the reason that everybody flew in from all over the country. It's a great meal. It's a good time to be had by all. But people did not fly in for that Friday night rehearsal dinner. No. That Friday night is actually for the meal that is to come the next day, the Saturday night wedding supper. It is a forward-looking meal. That Friday night rehearsal dinner meal is a forward-looking meal towards consummation. This that we do here every Sunday is the rehearsal dinner on Friday night. It's a great meal. It's a good time. Good. I'm glad to be here with all of you, and let's do it until the Lord returns. But we are actually here. We all like flew in from across the country tonight for a consummation, in anticipation toward the final marriage supper of the Lamb. And so we eat, and so we wait. We tear the bread, and we can say in our hearts presently, now, thank you, Lord Jesus, for your body broken for me, for your blood shed for me. I love you, and I trust you. And yet... When we come to the table, as we eat and drink, we can say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So we proclaim to God in our hearts, come quickly, consummate and make all of this new. Fill us and satisfy us fully and eternally. But now thirdly, what does communion proclaim to ourselves? In verse 24, Paul recounts Jesus' telling that this is my body broken for you. We proclaim to ourselves that Jesus has died for us and, in fact, has united us to himself. I've already said it a couple of times tonight. Kyle said it a couple of times, too. We didn't share notes on this, but I was just trying to keep track of how many times he said the word or the phrase, in Christ, many times tonight. Paul says it 
all the time. Paul says the phrase in Christ or some variation of that phrase over 160 times in his letters. He says in Christ or in him 11 times in the single Greek sentence of Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, which we'll get to in two weeks as we start that wonderful book. But 11 times in one sentence, Paul. Yes, we get it. In fact, if we don't rightly understand what many call the doctrine of union with Christ, then we won't understand Paul or the rest of the Bible for that matter. So remember the illustration that I've shared from a pastor in Southern California who had a friend who grew up fearful, constantly feeling unworthy of love as she was a high school student. But she later began working at Disneyland and worked her way up to the Mickey Mouse costume. Though she was fearful, timid, shy, always self-condemning, she actually got to become Mickey Mouse and experience all of being Mickey, which experience, well, that actually transformed her character, her disposition, all of Mickey's benefits and qualities and confidence and likability. And so while Paul would have no concept of amusement park characters or walking, talking mice, this is actually, I think, maybe the most helpful way of understanding union with Christ, of being in him. Like when Paul tells the Colossians, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Hidden in him so that we become like him. We shortchange the gospel if we assume that it was merely an effort by God to save us from hell. I think we often understand what God has saved us from, but we don't understand what God has actually now in the present saved us to. The very sharing of the divine life through Christ sustained by the Spirit. The love, the unity, the confidence that the Father and the Spirit share within the triune life with Christ the Son. When we are in Christ, we share in that fellowship. So perhaps in the particular tradition in which you were raised, you were like browbeaten into thinking uh, or experiencing the Lord's Supper somewhat like a funeral. Perhaps shaped by a line in a song, a song that we often sing, that it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. I did this. This is my fault. My rebellion and scoffing is the reason that Jesus went to the cross. And we, and we do want to spend time and reflection of confessing our sin. But what is the very next line of that song? And how deep the Father's love for us. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life Can y'all finish it? For I know that it is finished. Jesus has now brought belonging, not condemnation, but assurance, acceptance, peace. It is finished for those in Christ. Condemnation and dread is gone. We have, at least as we do in our service here at Christ Church, we have confessed our sin. That was like an hour ago though, right? We spent time thinking about the ways in which we have misdirected our worship, worshiped ourselves, that's gone. We'll do it again next week because there's plenty more sin to come this week. But this is gone. Now we are assured of our full and final pardon in Christ. Now we come confidently. 
uh, a, f a few years ago when we were still pre-COVID and we had a, just one big loaf out and we would tear bread from the loaf. I, I said, hey, just come confidently and tear off a big old piece of bread. Like it's not, if you didn't have a great week, you're trying to pinch off just a little like fingernail size piece of bread or something. No, you're coming to the table. You are not justified and welcomed at the table because of your godly week. You are welcomed and belong at the table because of Christ's godly eternity. And he welcomes you here. So come on his merit and tear and take confidently. Since we're doing this, maybe you can just find the biggest piece that you see on the plate. Um, but maybe don't do that because then all the small pieces will be left for the people at the end. But I don't know. You'll have to work through that in your own conscience. But So here's the thing. While a crude and maybe even blasphemous illustration... We approach this table each week wearing a Jesus costume. Wearing the costume. Dressed in his righteousness alone. Faultless to stand before the throne. We come united to Christ. So communion proclaims our communion with one another. Our community as, blood -bought, as the blood-bought family of God. But it also proclaims our union with Christ. And we Proclaim this to ourselves, because we will forget. Union with Christ does not, does, doesn't just give us confidence on Sundays. Union with Christ, rightly understood, is one of the most life-transforming things that we can ever understand. We share in his death, freedom from the penalty of sin and the death of the old self, but we also share in his life, the power of his resurrection and of the new self that is now finally able to love God and to love others. We are a forgetful people, though, and Jesus knew it. So he commanded us to intentionally remember. It's been said that sin is always an act of spiritual amnesia. I think that's right. We just forget who we are, and so we sin. A regular forgetting of who we are in Christ, and so we need regular reminders that will burn deeply into our souls. Now, we don't think that churches must partake in the Lord's Supper weekly. Jesus isn't specific about that. All he says in verse 26 is, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup. For some churches, that means once a week. For some, that means once a month. For some, that means once a quarter. For some, that means once a year. But I know that my forgetfulness and this weekly reminder is so vital for me. Just like weekly communion prevents conflict among the body, weekly communion prevents unconfessed sin or a presumptuous lack of reflection. And it prevents our um, forgetting that we are indeed alive in Christ. Perhaps there are some of you who are concerned that the Lord's Supper might become rote, might become mechanical if you do it each week, thereby losing its significance. And I suppose that could happen. Perhaps you've been in churches in which you do do it once a month or quarterly, and you think that that actually made it more significant. But I think we can make the same argument for singing and praying and preaching. We don't do those things quarterly. We rightly do them weekly, and we understand that if you are mechanically singing or if you are rotely praying or listening to sermons, the problem is likely not with the songs or the preaching. The problem is likely with you. So Christians, in just a moment, use your coming to the table as a way of remembering. Remember what Jesus has done for you in his dying and his 
resurrection, but also remembering who you are. Like Mufasa told Simba, remember who you are. This is like that kind of serious, sober moment. Remember who you are. Your coming forward is not based on your faithfulness to him, but of his faithfulness to you. He will hold you fast. So keep coming in humble humble confidence. Now, a few years ago, we talked about grace being left-handed or the the opposite hand of your dominant hand. If you're right-handed, the grace is like being is like left-handed. If you're left-handed, grace is right-handed. Meaning that the fleshly, worldly responses come like right-handed responses. Like if I threw a ball at your face, your dominant hand would just come up and impulsively, reflexively, you don't even have to think about it, swat the ball away. Or if you're Chris Juarez, catch it. But what about when you try to do something with your left hand? It takes slow, deliberate, uh, intentional action of mind and hand. But it's also, while messier, especially if you're trying to write left-handed, that's really messy, but it's actually something that you can grow in with intentionality. And so while we don't currently tear the bread right now, uh, I still pick up the bread every week with my left hand. It's really hard to tear it, It but that was good. It was good to tear it left-handed. I think it's good to pick up uh, the bread with your opposite hand, your non-dominant hand, reminding us that this does not come naturally. This is not easy even. The Lord Jesus has accomplished for me, and I must slow my heart and think about the way of his grace toward me with slowness, with deliberateness, not impulsive reflexivity, reflexivity, but just slowly and deliberately depending on him. Take the bread left-handed. If you're left-handed, take it right-handed. It will cause you to slow down and remember who you are as you come to him, proclaiming to God that I can't do this on my own, that I need him the slower and sometimes more difficult way of grace. Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes to each other, to God himself, to ourselves, and now lastly, what, pro- what communion proclaims to the world. Uh, I haven't mentioned Mike Cosper's excellent little book on worship and liturgy, Rhythms of Grace, since the first week that we started this whole series uh, together, but Cosper says this, this is so good. He says that worship isn't merely a yes to the God who saves, but it is also a resounding and furious no to the lies that echo in the mountains around us. Let that settle in for a while. Worship says yes to God and a resounding no to the world. So every time we come to this table, we are proclaiming to the world around us that its kings and kingdoms will fall and fail. It is only on this side of the cross that through death and weakness that the world makes any sense. And that we, as God's people, ultimately reject the worldly norms of power and of pride. Even if, temporarily this week, we actually did look to those norms of power and pride, thinking that they would save us. Ultimately, we come to this table in rejection of those norms. Every time we come forward and partake of the bread and the cup, we proclaim to the world the most central reality of who we are. More than we are Americans, more than we are New Mexicans, 
more than we are white or Hispanic or native, more than we are insurance agents or realtors or teachers or students, more than we are Shermans or Layers or Riveras, more than we are Schneiders or Stevens or Ortegas or Richardsons. Our primary and most fundamental identity is that we are Christians. The body of Christ united to one another as we are united to him. This meal is a huge and unmistakable bumper sticker. Probably more efficient and better than a bumper sticker that you might put on your own car. But we are putting this symbol on ourselves to say this is the one and the people to whom we belong. We are proclaiming that our lives make no sense apart from a bloody cross and an empty tomb. That our lives are no longer our own, but we belong to Christ, united to him in his death and resurrection. So that's why we say each week that if you would not feel comfortable in communicating what this proclamation is saying about yourself, that your life actually makes no sense apart from an empty tomb, we wouldn't want you to do something and come forward in this meal that might violate your own conscience. We wouldn't want that for yourself. If you are not a Christian, we are so glad you're here. You are not intruding upon a family gathering. We're glad to welcome you and to get to know you and pray with you. You are welcome here and we hope and pray that as you keep coming on Sundays with us here that one day because of your faith in the Lord Jesus that you too would come forward with us here. As we've said so many times, this meal, this table might not be for you tonight, but Jesus is. Coming forward is not a way to receive grace from God. It is a declaration that you have already received grace from God. And so Mark Dever says, the Lord's Supper is for sinners and only sinners. If you are not a sinner, then the table is not for you. But it's not for any sinner. It's for repenting sinners people who have confessed their sin, put their trust in Christ, and followed after him. And so just as Kyle invited you earlier, if you have questions about the cross, if you have questions about what it might look like to repent of your sins, if you might have questions even about more things that, you, that I didn't address here about this, this table, please, first, you can maybe... Maybe not the questions about the table, but if you just want to look, ask a question about what it looks like to be a Christian, ask a Christian next to you. Ask the Christian who invited you here. They would love to tell you about this great gospel. But certainly, if you do have other questions that perhaps they might not be able to answer, Kyle and I would love to talk to you, meet you over coffee or lunch this week. We would love to have you join us at this table soon. But in the meantime, Let's reflect one more time in prayer before coming to proclaim his death as we do together. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that you in your wisdom and in your kindness and in your grace have sent your son, the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for your life and death and resurrection that you, immortal, invisible, God only wise, have come to live a life of humility, that you are gentle and that you are lowly in heart, that you would welcome us 
Lord Jesus, we pray that we would reject these norms of pride and power that we are so tempted by throughout the week. We pray that we would, as we come to this table, be reminded of the way of the cross, the way of humility, the way of meekness, the way of sacrifice, that we might be united to your substitutionary life and death, reminded of that substitutionary life and death, that we might be further transformed and united into one body, caring for one another, considering each other's needs to be more significant than our own, just as you have. Lord Jesus, we pray that over the next many decades together that you would use this gift, this gift of this table that you have given us to transform us, to hold us fast, to make us more into your image, we pray. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would seal us, bind us, empower us, and nourish us by all of these things. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.